the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Ron Geyer Roofing. The Bible describes events that will mark the last days, or end times. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Matthew 24.44 tells us, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Bible teacher Ron Geyer leads us through Scripture that will help us to remain strong in the Lord. End Time Insights with Bible teacher Ron Geyer starts now. Good evening, everybody. Ron Guy with End Time Insights. And this is Sunday night, Christmas Day. Hallelujah. God bless you. Merry Christmas. We wish God's best to everyone. We thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you. And, you know, regarding Christmas, I know there's a lot of different talk about the beginning of Christmas celebration and how it's pagan and stuff. Let me just say this, you know. Whether it's pagan or not, it's a day when the entire world is thinking about the Savior of the world. I will use that as an opportunity to tell people about him, to bring him glory. And so, Merry Christmas. Yes, I know he was born on a Thursday. Yes, I know he was born in the fall. I get that. But today, Merry Christmas. Uh, I hope you have a blessed day. I hope you are talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of everyone who's ever been born, of everyone who's alive which is why we do this show. We're trying to give you some information to help you in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I know that I was talking about, I wanted to get us into the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand year reign when Jesus Christ actually rules and reigns the earth from the earth. And I think I got ahead of myself because God keeps giving me other stuff to talk about and I'm going backwards. (laughs) It's like, Ron, we're not there yet. So I said, okay, So I was all set to get into that thousand-year reign teaching of Christ, but I believe that the Lord has checked me, and he let me know that we have unfinished business here, and part of that unfinished business is going to be Matthew chapter 24. It's a really prophetic chapter. It's a great chapter. It's got so much in it, and so we will talk about that for however long it takes, and I'm having fun studying it. I'm learning. I love learning. You know, I love it, love it, love it. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Discerning the truth. You've got to know the truth. A student, rightly dividing the word of truth. I am a follower of Jesus. Therefore, I want to know about Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. But before we get into this very prophetic chapter, a couple of truths that you will need to uh, be pointed out to you to ensure that we understand this chapter correctly. First, This is Jesus replying to questions from his disciples. The disciples were asking him certain questions, and he's going to answer those questions. But remember, his disciples, they are Jewish. Hallelujah. He teaches them from what they know. He can't talk to them like he talked to the church because the church hasn't been formed yet. They don't have the understanding that we have today. So when you're back there 2,000 years ago and you hear Jesus talking to them, you've got to remember the context of how this teaching took place. He teaches them Jewish truths, not church truths, as if yet there is no church. 
They know nothing about a rapture. Therefore, he doesn't really talk about that rapture in the Olivet Discourse. That's what this is called. Remember, the was it chapter 5 in Matthew was the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. Well, this is the Olivet Discourse, teaching from the Mount of Olives. And it's where he gave this account of what was about to happen. So, therefore, he doesn't talk to them in this Olivet Discourse. It's all Jewish. One must also understand the context in which this is written. We need to go back to the closing verses of Matthew 23. So, in order to teach you properly for Matthew 24, I've got to go back to Matthew 23. And in order to teach you properly about Matthew 23, we have to go... No, I'm just teasing. (laughs) So we're going to start talking about Matthew 24 by finishing up the last couple of verses in chapter 23 of Matthew. Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Those are the last three verses of chapter 23. Here Jesus has turned. He's walked away from the Jews. He has had it with their unbelief. He has had it with their pagan leaders. He has just denounced the leadership of the nation of Israel for their rejection of their Messiah, him. He is frustrated. They have rejected him for the last time. No longer will he teach in their temple. The fact is, this signals the end of his public ministry in total. Henceforth, he will only teach his disciples. He never enters the temple again. Not only is the temple left unto them desolate of the presence of Christ, but now, upon his leaving, it is also bereft of the Shekinah glory of God. Hmm. A similar fate which happened to the Jews when God left them in the old book. John Phillips observes that the king has passed final judgment on the nation of Israel. All that remained was the cross. But first, in an astonishing prophetic discourse, the king gave his disciples a sketch of the general tenor of the new church age that was about to be inserted into time, and then went on to speak of the end-time events that will herald his coming again. Dr. Edmund Hebert writes that the Olivet Discourse is a prophetic unveiling of the future of his disciples, Yet its specific aim is to warn, exhort, and encourage them to faith and obedience. So it's with this understanding, let's get into what is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. Remember now, Matthew 24, Jesus, is, verse 1, he has just turned his back on the Jews. They are done. Public ministry is over. Now it's just going to be a personal teaching of Jesus' disciples as he prepares them for his death. Matthew 24, verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. The significance, once again, of the statement, not only did Jesus depart, but he took the glory with him. How? He literally walked away for the last time. One important note, when the Shekinah glory of the Lord left the Jewish temple in Ezekiel's day, shortly thereafter, that temple was destroyed. Similarly, was Herod's temple a short time destroyed after Jesus left. Ezekiel 8 through chapter 11 details the Lord's glory being removed. Israel's sin, which caused the Lord's glory to be removed, was idolatry. That's a warning. Be careful, America. We are full of idolatry. And the greatest 
point of our idolatry is what? Men will be lovers of themselves. We have created idols out of man. The disciples were focusing on the exterior of the temple. Beautiful building, glorious, huge, clothed in white marble with the seam sealed by gold. Just a beautiful, 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 large edifice. It was at that time considered one of the seven great wonders of the world. The disciples were focusing on the beauty of the temple, the exterior of the temple, as if its beauty could be their source of deliverance or even salvation. Jesus was focusing on the inner temple, the heart of man. It was truly a beautiful structure. I'm not going to go into describing it to you. That's not important here. What is important is the worship the Jews gave to the temple, which is why it would soon be destroyed. Verse 2, And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Truly, I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. You know, that got their attention. The Jews, they worshipped the temple. They loved the temple. They felt that the temple was their source of strength, their source of spiritual connectivity to God. Jesus begins the prophecy to the disciples. Here he tells them that this beautiful structure and all its finery and glory wouldn't last out the century. Actually, it was destroyed and burnt down to the ground, just as Jesus said in A.D. 70. In prior verses, Jesus told them that his body, his temple, would be torn down also. But here he references that actual physical destruction of this magnificent temple. Specifically, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, erected scaffolds around the walls of the temple and its buildings. He put it under siege. He filled them with wood and other flammable material, and he set the wood that he placed on the scaffolds on fire. The intense heat from the fires caused the stones to crumble because it melted the gold that had held them together. After it was further dismantled and sifted to find all that melted gold, the rubble was thrown down into the Kidron Valley. Only the huge foundation stones of the temple remained intact. Those stones, however, were not part of the temple itself, but supporters for the retaining wall. So we see that the temple was destroyed, just as Jesus said it would be. Then in verse 3, and as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, so catch this now. They're in the temple. Jesus walks out of the temple. He has had enough. He is deeply wounded. He is deeply bruised. They have rejected him for the last time. And all the disciples can do is point out to the temple, look at the grandeur of this temple. And so Jesus keeps on walking, and he's walking over to the Mount of Olives. So next we find him sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the end of the age? So there's either two or three questions in there. You can connect the last two together. But first they want to know, tell us, when will these things happen? What things? Well, they're talking about when will the temple be destroyed? And so Jesus is on the mountain. They're all looking down upon the the temple because the Mount of Olives where they're sitting, it offers a panoramic view of the temple. Uh, commentator Brother Stedman comments, Having said this, Jesus left the temple, and the disciples went with him. Silently they walked down through the valley of Kidron and up the other side to the Mount of Olives. There Jesus took his seat upon one of the rocks that overlooked the city of the temple area. The higher elevation enabled them to look down on a panoramic view of the city. The disciples were troubled and they were confused. They could not understand Jesus' actions or his words concerning the temple. The temple was the center of the nation's life, and they regarded it with holy awe as the very dwelling place of God himself. Mm. It's where God dwelt among his people. Its beauty was famous throughout the earth, and they could not believe that God would allow any harm to come to it. 
So they began to point out to Jesus the strength and the beauty of the temple, which then led them to asking the three questions. First, they wanted to know, when will this temple be destroyed? So let's take that. The first question was a when question, not a why question. Obviously, they understood the frustration of Jesus with the Jews' rejection of him, so they knew judgment was going to come. To them, the why was a given. They wanted to know when it was going to happen. They didn't question the fact that God was going to judge Israel. I guess they half expected it, but they wanted to know when. A valid question. The first question was a when question. There are some who say the disciples only asked two questions here, not three. And based on the way the question was asked, I can understand that. The next two questions, let me read them again. Tell us when will be things happen? Question number one. Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And question number three, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? Those two are connected. We can take them together. We can separate them. It's no big deal. They wanted to know. So they understood that both the sign of Jesus' coming and the end of the age would be at the same time. See, they connected that. They knew that. They knew that Jesus would come and the sign would accompany that coming. Hence, it's a proper theology to conclude that the first question, when will the temple be destroyed, was also connected to his return as well. All three questions were connected. Why? Because they thought that Jesus, remember, they thought he was coming to set up his kingdom the first time. And now they're telling him, well, we understand that the temple is going to be destroyed. We get that. So is it at that time also when you're going to come back that we'll see the sign of your return? They put them all together. So when will the temple be destroyed was also connected to his return as well. Unfortunately, that thinking was going to be false. It was going to be a mistake. The actual destruction of the temple took place in A.D. 70 by the Romans. And continuing on with Brother Stedman's comments, he continues and he says, In Luke 21.20, we have other details of this predicted overthrow of the city and the temple. There, Jesus adds, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. A short 40 years later, the Roman armies under Titus came and, and they fulfilled the prediction to the very letter. With Titus was a Jewish historian who just happened to be named Josephus, who recorded the terrible story in minute detail. It was one of the most ghastly sieges in all of history. This is what was happening in Jerusalem, guys. When the Romans came, the city was divided. There were three warring factions of the Jews in the city who were so at each other's throats that they paid no heed to the approach of the Roman army. Thus, Titus came up and surrounded the city while it was distracted by its own internecine or internal warfare. The Romans assaulted the walls again and again and gave every opportunity to the Jews to surrender the city and save their capital from the destruction that was about to come. During the long siege, a terrible famine raged in the city and the bodies of the inhabitants of the city were literally stacked like cordwood in the streets. Mothers ate their own children to preserve their own strength. Mm. The toll of Jewish suffering was horrible, but they would not surrender the city. Again and again, they attempted to trick the Romans through guile and perfidy. When at last the walls were breached, Titus tried to preserve the temple by giving orders to his soldiers not to destroy or to burn it. But the anger of the soldiers against the Jews was so intense that, maddened by the resistance that they had encountered, they disobeyed the order of their general And they set fire to the temple. There were great quantities of gold and silver which had been placed in the temple for safekeeping. These melted and ran down between the rocks and into the cracks of the stones that formed the temple and the wall around it. When the Roman soldiers finally took the city, 
In their greed to obtain this gold and silver, they took the long bars and pried apart these massive stones. Thus, quite literally, not one stone was left standing upon another stone. The temple itself was totally destroyed, though the wall supporting the area upon which the temple was built was left partially intact, and a portion of it remains to this day and is called the Western Wall. In this remarkable fulfillment, confirmed so strongly by secular history, it's convincing proof that God will fulfill every other part of this amazing message literally and fully. As Jesus himself said in his discourse, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Matthew 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered their questions and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. The word there for deceive is repeated time and time again in the New Testament. There are many meanings of the word deceive that are referenced here. The first one is planeo, and it means something that's fraudulent, something that causes one to roam from their place of safety, to wander or to go astray, to move away from security. That's the word that Jesus is telling him. Do not go astray. Do not move away from my words. Ephesians 4.14 is an example of that word being used. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby these men lie and wait to deceive. That's where we are today. We are being deceived. That deception is causing us to move away from Christ. It's causing us to move away from our security of the gospel. The second Greek word is apateo, and it means to cheat you, to delude you. We find that being used in Ephesians 5 and 6. Let no man deceive you. Let no man cheat you. Let no man delude you. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. The third word is exapateo, and it means to seduce one wholly. 1 Corinthians thirteen sixteen through 18. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no man deceive himself. Wow, there's a sermon there, deceiving yourselves. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. So Jesus says, don't be deceived. Don't let anyone move you away from the place of safety. Don't let anyone cause you to go astray. He says, don't let anyone cheat you. Don't let anyone delude you. And finally, he says, do not let anyone seduce you wholly. The very first thing, before he even answers the questions, he warns them, do not let anyone take you away from the words I'm about to tell you. He issues this stern warning. My words were going to be challenged, guys. What I'm about to tell you will be questioned. It will be twisted and they will be manipulated. Take heed. Watch out. The easy to read version says, Jesus answered, be careful. Don't let anyone fool you. A quick word about don't let. You've got to know that. That let word is one of the power words in the Bible. Don't let. Remember, let is a powerful Bible word. Anytime the word let appears, whatever comes after that is something that you have the power to do, something you have power over, something you have the right to control. Jesus tells them here, take charge of what I'm telling you. Make it your own, exalted above whatever else you hear that is contrary to my words. Note, also, Jesus is not speaking of Satan's deception here. He is talking about man deceiving man. The church had not been established yet at the time of this discourse, but to us, As Christians today, this warning should take priority to the church from within the church. There is so much danger within the church. And Jesus said, do not let anyone move you away from my word. So before Jesus even begins to answer their questions, he wants to ensure that his words, the truth is protected. 
It's a similar warning today that comes from every word of God to every believer. Guard yourselves, because my words will be subject to the scrutiny of man, and you must give them priority over what anybody else says. It began in the garden, and it is still one of Satan's foremost weapons against the church. I'm going to read you the example. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 4. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Satan counters. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely died. So there you see it right there. Somebody speaks against the word of God. And look at this. The woman believed him. Man believed the devil. And what happened? (laughs) Just the downfall of mankind. I mean, look at the ability that wives have to influence. Eve could have reminded Adam. Adam could have reminded Eve. This is what God said. That takes precedence. But no, Eve liked the tree. She saw that its fruit was good. She lusted after the wisdom that was going to be offered to her that Satan told her she could have. And she sinned. And mankind has been paying the price ever since. Jesus never defended himself, but he always defends the word of God. Amen. That's so important to understand. When Jesus was being accused, he didn't bother to say I'm innocent. He didn't bother to say they're lying. He just defended the word of God. He always spoke the word of God. Matthew 24, verse 5. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now he's about to talk to them about a very specific type of deception, the deception of false messiahs. Non-Jewish claimants, in complete contradiction to Scripture, Wikipedia lists 27 people who have claimed to stand in the role of Jesus within just the last 200 years. Six. Some are names we recognize from the news headlines. Sun Myung Moon, considered within the Unification Church as the Messiah and the Second Coming of Christ. Two, Jim Jones, claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus. Buddha, Vladimir Lenin, and Father Divine, prior to leading a mass suicide of his followers, they all claimed to be Jesus. Marshall Applewhite claimed to be Jesus and the Son of God prior to leading his so-called Heaven's Gate cult, Mass suicide to rendezvous with a spaceship hiding behind the comet Halibop. I mean, come on, folks. Hallelujah. David Koresh, another false messiah, leader of the Branch Davidian religious sect in Waco, Texas, claimed to be the son of God, the Lamb. Jesus warned us, do not follow these people. The phrase there is actually, will mislead. And it's the same Greek word, planeo. It describes a wandering and gives us our English word, planet means literally made to wander, and so to go or to be led as of a sheep. In Matthew, to go or to be led astray. You cannot go astray. you got to stay in the Word of God. I see it every day, folks. We, My Facebook post, my preaching, it's always about the Word of God. You cannot drift from the Word of God. You cannot manipulate the Word of God. The idea is that outside influence causes the deception that leads one to go down the wrong path. You've got to stay in the Word of God. You know, this is Christmas season. It's Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Day, actually, the night. And it's a very special time. And I know that I know that I know that you are thinking about Jesus. I also know that I know that I know that the people in your families are thinking about Jesus. The people in your sphere of influence are thinking about Jesus. The people you work with, the people you do business with, the people you shop with. 
your friends, your neighbors, even your enemies. I know that I know that I know that they are thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are quickly running out of time. There is not much time left. You know, you are either serving God through an uh, intentional choice of yourself or you are serving Satan by default. There is no door number three. There is no middle ground. I encourage you this season to make Christ your Lord and Savior. He died for you. The sin that you are being held accountable for outside of Christ has already been paid for in Christ. Fifty-six times the Bible says in the New Testament that you belong in Christ. If you are not in Christ yet, you need to repent of your sin, acknowledge you need the Messiah, and let him come into your life, fill you with his Holy Spirit. That's called being born again. And join us living for eternity in the kingdom of God. Father, I pray that you touch lives. I pray that you convict sinners. During this time, I also pray that you heal families, that you heal relationships, that you restore relationships, you restore marriages, Father God. I pray for your goodness and your grace to lead us to repentance. I thank you for being so good to us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us for End Time Insights with Ron Geyer. Listen again next Sunday night at 8 on 100.7 The Word, where faith comes by hearing. You can also listen to the podcast of this program by going to kkht.com. If you would like to contact Ron, email him at gospelguy at comcast.net. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.